All right, we're in Luke chapter 18. Luke was a compassionate doctor, and he wrote about a lot of different kinds of people. And we see the different meetings that Jesus has with so many different kinds of people, from government officials to religious officials to widows, every strata of society Luke seems to be interested in covering. And though uh, all the gospel writers cover the ministry of Jesus, they cover it uniquely in their own style. And one of the unique things about Luke is the kind of people that he pieces together uh, in these meetings with Jesus. Now, um, verse 1 of chapter 18 and the first eight verses talk about prayer. And uh, it says, Jesus, he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. There was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. The Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Um, there was a farmer who had relatives from the city. The relatives were more refined and more educated. And they came out to the farm, and the farmer, in very simple, childlike faith, at dinner time, bowed his head and prayed for the food. And after the prayer was over, his sophisticated relative chided the simple farmer for his faith in God. He said, that is so outdated. That is so unintelligent. Any thinking person knows that people don't pray anymore before meals. The farmer said, well, you know, I got to admit, there are some on my farm who do not render thanks to God. They do not pray. They feel the same way you do. The man sort of felt justified. He said, oh, it's great to hear that somebody's enlightened around here. Who is it? The farmer said, my pigs. Prayer is never easy, especially during times of, of trouble, tribulation. You've been waiting for so long. You've been offering this prayer up. And nothing has happened. But Jesus' message is men ought always to pray and never to faint. Now, you could look at that generally, which we want to for our purposes, to apply it to our lives. You could also look at it in a special sense. If you were to examine the greater context, Jesus has been speaking about the last days in chapter 17. And in a general sense, he could be speaking about between the first and second coming, the wearying effect as we wait in a world filled with sin for Jesus to come back. Listen, I wanted Jesus to come back in 1973 when I first got saved. And he waited. In 1975, I started growing a little weary. Now, where is he? I've just become a Christian, and surely he's going to come back any moment. 76, 77, 1980, I thought, you know, after this year, it, it, it can't last any longer. The world's gotten so bad, Jesus has to come back. 
Throughout history, in the last 2,000 years, people have been waiting for Jesus Christ. It doesn't get easy in a world filled with sin and corruption. We feel like fainting. Now, in a special sense, Jesus could be speaking, since the context is prophecy, about the tribulation period and the Jewish remnant that is persecuted by the Antichrist and his forces. Or he could be speaking about the same time period, but the great multitude that is waiting for God to avenge them. In fact, they cry out, the souls under the altar, they say, Lord, how long until you avenge our blood on the people who are on the earth? How long will it be? And God has to comfort them through his messengers in that chapter. Men ought always to pray and not faint or lose heart. You know, in times of difficulty, it seems that you do one of two things, right? You either faint and lose heart, or you commit it to God and you pray. In times of great stress, it seems like there is no middle ground. It's not easy. The Bible says that we are to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. Now, I have a theory. My theory is that your prayer ought not to be reserved for once a night or once a week. That is, you shouldn't like store up all of the anxieties and then kind of have an unloading time. Okay, it's Sunday. I unload all my burdens before God. Now I come to church. Here, here they are. How about doing it as you get them? How about treating your trials and your burdens like hot potatoes? Instead of grabbing them and getting burned, just, woo, too hot. Get rid of it. Throw it up to him. You handle it. If every time during the day that you were hassled, you felt anxiety, and you felt personal stress, let's say every time that happened, you were literally wearing a backpack and somebody tossed a little stone in it. Now, at first, you know, by 10 o'clock, you're doing fine. There's just a few of them. Boss said something corny to you. Uh, somebody told a bad joke. You got a flat tire. Okay, a few bad things have happened. You just have a few in there. If you were to do that throughout the day and collect them, by the end of the day, man, your back would be so burdened. It, oh, it hurts. It's breaking. Now, you could dump them at the end of the day or once a week, or as you get them, you could cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. And the idea of praying here is an incessant kind of a thing. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, what did Paul say? He said, we ought to pray always without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean we walk around mumbling things all day long? Having an ongoing 24-hour prayer meeting? I can't talk to you right now. I'm praying. You're mumbling. I can't eat right now. I'm praying. I got to always pray. Never cease. The idea is constantly recurring prayer rather than constantly occurring prayer. In other words, let it be a habit where you are turning things over to God. It's conversational. It is the habit of your life. You don't wait for, now I lay me down to sleep, or for Sunday morning, or at mealtime. There's a lot of Christians, I fear, that they, they confine their prayer to get up in the morning, hi God, bless this day. Then at mealtime, thanks for the food, in Jesus' name, amen. And then they do that three times, of course, because they like to eat three times a day. Um, and then at night, now I lay me down to the door. God, thanks for the day. God, see you in the morning. Good night. Not much of a communication. 
far from the idea of pray without ceasing. And I think you'd faint less if you would have prayer more in a constantly recurring kind of a basis. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, here's our typical ritual. We have a burden. We have a care. We come to God first. And we say, Lord, I trust you. Here's my burden. I lay it at your altar. You're God. You're big enough to handle it. Now handle it. Amen. Then we leave it there. But if God doesn't work according to our schedule, then we start hunting around for the burden. Why hasn't God been working? I'm still going through this. I've given God. Well, I'm timing him. You might not articulate it, but it's almost by our actions as if we're saying, God, do you see that burden I cast upon you the other day? Is it lying around somewhere? Give it back to me, would you? You're not doing anything with it. Let me handle it for a while. I'll nip it in the bud. I'll take care of I'm, I'm that. I'm a type A personality. I'm going to take care of it. Give me my burden back. Give me my stones back. And the trust is gone. There's that great hymn that's from time to time we sing. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I catch myself from time to time getting caught up in something. And I go, wait a minute. I haven't even mentioned this to God. I can say, well, God knows all. Yeah, but he likes to have you talk to him about it. Just like I like to have my son come and tell me about his day and unload. It's not like I need the information, but I am concerned. And so it's an invitation and really a command. It's really an exhortation. Men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Then he gives a parable. Now, this is a parable of contrast. Keep in mind that there are different kinds of parables. Some are parables by direct comparison and analogy. Some are parables by antithesis or contrast. And Jesus wants to make the point that if an ungodly man is going to put up with the continual dripping of a widow who comes and says, get the job done, he doesn't want to do it. But if he's going to do it for her, how much more will a heavenly father do it for his kids? That's the idea. It's a parable of contrast. There was, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Avenge me of my adversaries. He would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Picture in your mind an ancient judge, not a modern judge. It's not a fancy courtroom. It's not like Judge Ito with all of the computers around him and the press. The judge in ancient times had a tent, and he moseyed from town to town and village to village. He was a circuit judge, and he would hear cases. More than that, he would go to the gates of the city, these enclosures at the entrance of the city, and hear legal cases. Now, women in those days didn't have clout. 
They didn't go to the judges, but she had no husband to plead her case. And so she goes, and she's pretty bold. She doesn't say, excuse me, your honor, sir. She just says, avenge me of my adversary. And he wouldn't do it. But she kept bugging him. And he got tired of putting up with her. Now, again, this is a comparison. This is or a contrast, not a direct comparison. Don't get in your mind that, well, God is like an unjust judge, and we're like a widow. But he makes the point by saying, hear what the unjust judge said. I'm going to do what she wants because she's continually coming. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out night and night or day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? I think what Jesus means is, will he find that kind of faith on the earth? We know that when Jesus returns, there will be a remnant of believers. Contrary to what some people teach, they say there's a thing called social evolution and we're getting better and better as a race. Of course, these must be people who never read the newspapers or history books. And that we're going to usher in the glorious kingdom by our behavior. It's just going to get better and better. Now the question is, when the Son of Man returns, will he find this kind of faith, the faith of a persistent widow, or the faith of his elect crying out to him? Now we know that the world is getting worse and worse. In fact, in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, listen to what it says. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. It sounds like People magazine, doesn't it? Sounds very modern. And from such people turn away. We know that Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Well, how was it in the days of Noah? Well, as I read it, there were only eight people who turned to God. And in Lot, there was a small group, four of them, and one looked back when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find the faith, or that kind of faith, on the earth? Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, two of these guys had a couple things in common. They were both going up to worship. They were both going to the temple. 
But one was very arrogant and one was humble. And if you were to watch them coming in the temple, if you were to spy them, oh, there's the Pharisee, here comes the tax collector, you couldn't tell from looking which was which. But their hearts were different. Outwardly, they were fine. Inwardly, they were very differently. It is exciting to see crowds, throngs of people come to church, come to a crusade, come to a conference, come to a concert. Oh, look at all the people. But what kind of people are coming? Certainly, they're not all the same. Some come like the Pharisee while others come like the tax collector. Some, like the Pharisee, have this shell. They will not hear truth openly. They're a little bit hardened to it. They're going to filter it all. They're going to make sure that it doesn't penetrate them. And as soon as the truth comes, they're going to kind of deal with it and dance around it and pass it on to somebody else, but never let it penetrate their own heart. And they're trying to justify themselves before God. Others will let it penetrate their hearts They will confess sin if it needs to be confessed. They will be humble before God. Now, the first, the Pharisee, was supposed to be the most spiritual of all. He's the example. He's the spiritual leader. Pharisees would pray at least three times a day. They went through rituals. They wore certain kinds of robes. They went through certain bathing rituals so as not to get defiled uh, like the rest of the Gentiles. Notice, the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. There's a clue right there. He's praying with himself. Probably he's praying out loud. And as he's praying, he's thinking of how neat his prayer sounds. He's going, wow, that, that does sound really, I did phrase that just right. Oh, I'm impressed with me even. God certainly must be impressed. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Now, if you were to count up his words, I think there are 34 words compared to the other guys who had only seven words. Certainly, the Pharisee prayed a longer prayer. The tax collector prayed a shorter prayer, and yet Jesus said the tax collector was justified. I'm not saying that you should seek to have the shortest possible prayer, but I'm saying that you can pray lots of nice things. And be impressed with how you pray and impress others with your prayer. You can be a golden-tongued prayer warrior. And people can go, wow, did you hear him pray? Did you hear how he phrased that? And all the while, God could be going, what? I can't hear you. Because your sins have separated between you and your God. There's a scripture that says that. My ear is not heavy that it cannot hear, neither is my hand short that it cannot save. But your sins have separated between you and your God. Very eloquent prayer, and he prays with himself. And he's got a list. Notice, let's work the list with him. There's a negative and a positive side. This is what he doesn't do. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. This is what I don't do. Or even like that filthy tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He had a negative list. In other words, I am better than most. And God, I thank you that I'm better than most. I'm so proud of being humble. (laughs) 
Have you ever talked to somebody about their need for Christ? And they'll answer it much the same way this guy prays. He'd say, do you know that you're saved? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Have you accepted God's solution for your situation? They will say, well, you know, I'm better than a lot. That's not what I asked you. Are you saved? Well, you know, there's people that do worse things than I do. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm better than a lot of you Christians. These answers prove that the people who speak them are trying to justify themselves. Because they're saying, by what I do or don't do, I am right before God. God accepts me because of what I don't do and then for what I do. That's what this man was trying to say in his prayer. It's always dangerous to compare yourself with other people. I'll tell you why. You can always find people worse than you. No problem. But let me tell you something else. You can always find people better than you, though we usually don't search for them at times like this. We're always looking for people who are a little worse than we are because it makes us feel a little bit better and a little more righteous. Now, sounds like he's a spiritual guy. He fasts twice a week. He's, he's got it on me. I fast twice a week. Jewish law said you only had to fast once a year on Yom Kippur. Afflict your souls the Day of Atonement. This guy does it twice a week. Now, some of the Pharisees, as we read in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, would disfigure their faces or put chalk on their face. So they look white and pale. So they, people would say, man, this guy looks bad. He hasn't eaten for a long time. And it must be because he is fasting. Thus, it must mean he is more spiritual than I am. They did it for a show. Fast twice a week. And he gives tithes of all that he owns. These are good things. But that's not the most important thing. God will never separate the worship from the worshiper. That is, God not only looks at what you offer him in terms of tithe or in terms of talent and time, he looks at the one offering it, and he never separates them. God's not impressed. Ooh, look how much he gave. Wow. I'm going to remember that God. I'm going to bless him more because of that. God never separates the worship from the worshiper. Cain and Abel, both of them brought sacrifices. But Cain's heart wasn't right, and God called him on it. He said, why is your countenance fallen? If you do right, then you'll be accepted. So he brought an offering, but he wasn't accepted because he wasn't doing right. And this man is offering tithes, but his heart isn't right before God. Now let's look at the tax collector. And the tax collector, he's also standing, but notice where. He's standing afar off. Now, picture in your minds the reaction of the crowd as Jesus is saying this. Pharisees were considered the utmost of righteous people. They were stunned when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like, what? They are the most righteous. That's what they traffic in is righteousness. So the Pharisees were considered the most righteousness. Tax collectors were in the class of the least righteous. Tax collectors in many Jewish writings are classified with adulterers and murderers. Because they worked for the Roman government, they exacted funds 
in excess from their own people. So they were like the scum of the earth. And Jesus says, let me tell you about a tax collector who knew he was the scum of the earth, and he confessed it. He stood afar off and would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The original language, it is singular. It is not a sinner, it is the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In other words, not one among others who are maybe better, maybe worse, but I'm the sinner. I know that I've sinned before you. He singles himself out. I find in the scripture that the more a person gets closer to God, there is a sort of a, a direct corollary. The closer you get to God, the more you realize your unworthiness. Arrogance holier-than-thou attitude only proves that you are not close to God. Case in point, Isaiah. How many of you can boast in seeing what Isaiah saw? He said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I heard the angels in their song, and the thing shook. It was awesome. And what was his response? Did he go, you know, I'm going I'm to go on Christian television and sell some books and tell them how God talked to me and I saw God and I've got a, sort of a hotline to heaven. He said, woe is me, I am undone because he saw holy God and in seeing holy God he realized how sinful he was in the presence of holy God. He thought, man, if God is that holy, where do I stand? Woe is me, I am undone, he said. Peter, when Jesus was with them on the boat and uh, they were fishing and didn't catch anything and Jesus said, throw your nets over on the other side. They threw their nets on the other, other side and the net was breaking. There were so many fish. Peter realized this isn't an ordinary dude that I have in my boat. And I'm getting the, the idea that this is like God and human flesh. And what was his response? He fell to his knees and said, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. What did Paul the Apostle say about himself? After seeing Jesus appear to him on the Damascus Road, he said, I am the chief of sinners. And John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus Christ, he said, I'm not worthy to tie his shoelaces. There, there is that continual experience of the closer a person comes to God, the humbler they become, not the more arrogant they become. And this man beat his breast. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know what I like? He's making confession. He's being real. He's being honest. Can you imagine being honest in church? I thought church is the place where you're supposed to have the spiritual facade, the smile. All the time. You come into church, forget about the, the problem you've been having. Don't tell that to anybody. They'll think you're a wimp. Just... Put on the smile and act like, oh, and everything's great. Nobody wants to hear a whiner, they say. So I'll just smile all the time. Whatever happened to being able to say, I'm brokenhearted? Do you mind that? Do I have the freedom to fail around you? Would you pray for me? Would you love me the way I am instead of the way you think I ought to be? This man said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he beat his breast and he wasn't ashamed to do it. I love it. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Bottom line, repentance. Admit your need. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. I find it a little bit odd that the disciples are acting this way around Jesus. Let me give you a little background and let me tell you why I think this is happening. The day and age in which they lived had different views of the family and especially children. Now the Greeks thought children were important, but children were not indispensable. The Greeks thought that under certain cases, children aren't important, you had to get rid of them. There's a letter that was found from, oh, maybe the second or first century B.C., from a man named Hilarion to his wife Apis. Hilarion was traveling, uh, presumably on business or fighting in the service for Greece. He heard that his wife was pregnant, about to have a child, and he wrote a congratulation letter to her and said, From Hilarion to my beloved wife Apis, I've heard that you're with child. I rejoice with you, and I'm doing fine. How are you doing? And he says, By the way, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, cast it out. He didn't want a daughter. He only wanted a son to perpetuate his name. And the daughter was dispensable to this Greek soldier. Then there was what the Romans thought. And the time of Jesus had the background of a Greco-Roman tradition. The Romans had a law called patria potestas, which meant... The dad is in control and has the power of life and death over the children. And even up to the year A.D. 60, Roman fathers were allowed, without even producing a cause, to kill their children if they wanted to. If the son got out of line or he just said, I'm tired, I'm just going to go kill him. By Roman law, because he was the patriarch of the family. Now, I know women today gripe because, oh, let's get rid of this patriarchal nonsense. Now, listen. It's easy compared to what it was. Women were considered an object, and children were considered able to kill by the father. That was the Roman background. Now, in Judaism, children were seen as a heritage from God. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the Psalms say. The fruit of the womb is his reward. And Jews placed a high priority on the having of children. In fact, there's a Jewish text. It's not in the Bible. Thank God. It's just a tradition that was written. It's part of the Talmudic literature of the Jews that said, there are a few people that will not enter heaven. Number one, a man who has no wife. Number two, a couple that has no children. Now, we know that's not true, but they placed a high priority and saw children as God's blessing upon their life. So Rachel, in the Old Testament, came to her husband and said, really furiously, Give me children or else I'll die. He said, Who am I, God, that I can grant you life? And then there was Hannah, who 
The Bible says the Lord closed her womb and she prayed, oh God, every year she'd go to the tabernacle and weep. And go, God, please, just open up my womb. Give me a son. If you do, I'll dedicate him to you all the days of his life. Just give me a son. They placed a high priority on children. Now, we know that Christians do the same. Judaism and Christianity, or the Judeo-Christian ethic, places a high priority on human life. It is not indispensable. In or out of the womb, every life is valuable because every life has the imago Deo, the image of God stamped upon man, created in the image of God. And the Bible says that we are to train our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Now, the disciples of all people should know Jesus' heart toward children. Some time back, he had taken the little children and set a ch- he put a child in their midst as an example. But here, there's crowds all around, and it says the disciples, when they saw the children parents bringing their children, they rebuke them. The original language says, actually, they were continually threatening them. These are Jesus' disciples. Get your kids out of here. Take your stroller and go home. (laughs) Jesus isn't interested in these kids. Now, why is that? It could be, number one, they knew Jesus was busy. And Probably, more so, they wanted time with Jesus themselves. They don't want to share Jesus with any kid. After all, these are just, they're kids. What do they know? What, what are they going to do? They're going to play around. They're going to draw in the dirt and rattle a few things and go. It's a waste of time. So they rebuked the people. Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Of God. I think, in part, this answers a question that some parents have. What about little children when they die? What happens to them? Do they go to limbo? I was taught they went to a place called limbo, which, by the way, you'll never find in the Bible. It's made up, and you can trace it historically. No, I believe children go to heaven. In another place that parallels this, Jesus said, the angels of these children are always in the presence of God, beholding his glory. For of such is the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that children are innocent, for we know that every person has a sinful nature. David said, I came forth from my mother's womb speaking lies. The Bible teaches that man has a depraved nature, that he is a sinner not only by choice, but by nature. You are born into this world in sin, estranged from God. The Bible teaches that. But when a child who doesn't have a chance to choose or turn away from God or turn toward God dies, I believe, I'm certain, that child is in the presence of God. I'm certain that heaven is populated with millions of children. And I think of the millions of children that haven't had a chance to live because of the selfishness of man with the abortion issue. It's a tragic issue. But I know that God redeems the situation, and those lives are with him in heaven. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. There is no self-sufficient person in heaven, nor will there ever be. A person who tries to relate to God, like the Pharisee, God, this is what I do, this is what I don't do, they won't make it. Only a person who, like a child, 
is humble, senses his need, and in humility just receives the kingdom of God, only those people will enter heaven. Not a self-sufficient or a prideful person. Like the hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Those are the people that will populate and do populate heaven. It's interesting. Jesus never said, you know, little children should become like adults. He said adults should become like little children. He never said, you've got to grow these kids up. Give them a theology degree. No. You can never be too bad to go to heaven. You can never be too small to go to heaven. You can be too big. You can think of yourself as bigger than you are. And in your pride, that can keep you out. It's always the reverse that needs to happen. We need to become childlike. Not childish, but childlike. The humility, the innocence of a little child in receiving God. The simplicity. You know, I think that God places within the conscience of a person from an early age... His existence. I think it is very normal and natural for children to believe in God. And I've met children from agnostic and even atheistic families who just have that natural proclivity to believe in God. They just believe he's there. Like the little girl who was raised by an atheist father who one day said, Daddy, do you, do you figure that God knows that we don't believe in him? She had a right. I think you have to deliberately plant a lie into the heart of a child to get that child not to believe in God. It only comes by conditioned response. It's not normal or natural. Yes, man is a sinner by nature, but God has made us subject to vanity. There's that imprint, that longing, that desire to know him. And kids grow up thinking, there's got to be a God. There's got to be one. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You have to plant a lie into the heart of a child to get that kid not to... I heard from somebody who lived in Atlanta that they conducted a lie detector test with some children in Georgia. And adults. And they asked them if they believe in God. And most of the kids said, yeah, there is a God. And they asked some... And they said, is there a God? And some said, no. And the... Detector went, lie. Deep within the heart of man, there is that knowledge. And I think that one of the reasons, well, first of all, Jesus loves children. Let them come. But also Jesus realizes the potential, the spiritual potential that exists within a child. Great spiritual potential. That natural inclination to believe in God and all that can become of that child. Now, in verse 18 and onward is an illustration of a person who did not receive the kingdom like a little child. But instead, he trusted in something else. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? What what an interesting answer. No one is good. No, uh, No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard these things, he said, still you lack one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Good teacher. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the approach of a lot of people. What do I have to do to get it? What things must I do? I'm a corporate entrepreneur. Just tell me, what do I need to do to earn heaven, to inherit eternal life? Well, we know that it comes as a gift. It's a free gift, the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but salvation is the free gift of God by his grace. So he had it wrong. Now, Jesus takes him back to the law, not saying that the law saves you, but he's taking him back to the second tablet of the law, the second portion of the Ten Commandments, which deal with his relationship to other people, fellow man. He's doing that to inspire conviction in his own heart, that he is a sinner, that he hasn't kept the law. He's not doing this to say, well, do this and you'll be justified, as much as he's doing it to say, let's examine your life in the light of this. The second tablet of the law, which basically talks about loving your brother, your neighbor as yourself. And this guy was so caught up selfishly that he really didn't love his neighbor, even though he said he kept all these from his youth. He said, still you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. Oh, really? You love people, huh? You've kept the, the uh, second tablet of the law. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When he heard this, he was sorrowful, for he was very rich. Jesus touched his God. He was testing him. Listen, if you are who you say you are, then you'll be willing, loving God, of course, as you do, to sell everything you have and distribute it to the needy, and you'll come and follow me, and I'll, don't worry, you'll have treasure in heaven. He couldn't do it. Jesus touched the one thing that was the idol in his life. For some of you, it might be riches. For others, it might be a relationship. For others, it might be a vehicle. For others, it might be an ideal, a goal. And what if God said, give it up, take it and sacrifice it like Abraham did with Isaac? Maybe you'd walk away and say, oh, I can't do that. I'll give you everything up to a point, but I won't let you touch that. Jesus touched the one thing that his heart held on to. He went away very sorrowful, for he was very rich. You know, this guy had the right talk. He was a religious guy. He kept the law. He was Jewish. You can have the right talk and make yourself feel good. Oh, I've done all that. But talk and faith as exemplified by actions are a whole different ballgame. You know, Jesse James went out and he killed a man in a bank robbery. And then he went out the next day and got baptized. And then the following week, he killed another couple guys, a teller behind the bank a counter. And the next week or that week, joined a church choir and taught hymn singing to the fellow choir members. He loved church. He loved Sundays. Except when it was, there was a conflict with his own work schedule. He would never miss a Sunday unless he was out robbing a bank or a train on Sunday. Then he'd be out for that Sunday, but he'd always come back. Jesse James was a rich young ruler. He loved the social structure of the church, but he, his heart wasn't changed. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Jesus is saying one of two things as I read it. He's either saying, I'm no good, or he's saying, I am God. It's as if Jesus is saying, 
why do you call me good? Is there something about me you recognize? Because my definition of good is not everybody has a spark of good. There's only one singular source of good, and that is God. Why is it that you're calling me good? It was an affirmation of his deity to this young ruler. And when Jesus saw that he had become very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? He said, The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Now, people have interpreted this scripture in a lot of different ways. Mostly, there are those wanting to sort of justify themselves. They say, well, you know, what Jesus was speaking about was the gate of the city, sometimes called the eye of the needle. And they will say that there was near the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem a gate with a small opening. The gate was closed at night, but there was a small little opening. And a camel, if you'd strip it of all of its goods and push it down far enough, it could be very difficult, but it could make it through that little opening in the wall of Jerusalem and get inside or outside. Except the Greek word that is used here for needle is a rare word, and it can only mean a surgeon's needle, a literal tiny needle. This is hyperbole. He's drawing an an impossible example. Taking a literal camel and fitting it through the eye of a tiny little surgeon's needle that you would thread with. That's exactly what it means. And that's why those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? Hey, that sounds impossible. Jesus is saying, That is my point. That is exactly my point. It is impossible for a rich person to be saved. It's also impossible for a poor person to be saved. That's the point here. Who then can be saved? Jesus said, it's impossible. With men. But what's impossible with men is possible with God. The point is this. If you trust in riches, if you trust in religion, like the examples that went before, you're not going to make it. You don't get to heaven by those means. It is impossible to get into God's kingdom by any of those means. Jesus talked about being humble like a little child. The reason they said who then can be saved is because based upon some of the teachings of the Old Testament, principally Deuteronomy 28, Jewish people believed, like errant, some errant believers today believe, that if you're rich, it's a sign that you're righteous. Because if you were really a godly person, God would bless your life materially and you would just be healthy and wealthy and drive a Cadillac and have the biggest house and it's a sign of God's blessing. And if you're poor, it's a sign of God's disfavor. So a rich Jewish person in the New Testament was obviously the most righteous. If they can't be saved, who can, is the idea. Hence Jesus remarks. Things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter, now he's trying to justify himself. Peter said, we have left all and followed you. Look what we gave up. Still trying to approach Jesus with what he's done. So he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or parents, or brothers, or wife, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come everlasting life. God will never be your debtor. Oh, God, look what I've given up for you. Oh, yeah, wow. Hell. Estrangement from Christ. No purpose. I've given up a lot for God. Oh, listen. Whatever God would allow you to go through in terms of suffering in this world, 
Paul said, it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that you will see in heaven. And what we call suffering in this country, oh, listen, I know it, life can't, isn't easy for, for any of, anybody, but we're blessed as a nation. Look what we've given up for you. Jesus said, God won't be your debtor. You'll get it back. He took the twelve aside and he said, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. I think he's thinking principally of Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, a myriad of types from the Levitical Old Testament. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, will be mocked and insulted and spit upon, and they will scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. We have just enough time to finish the chapter and read Bart, the story of blind Bart, Bartimaeus. It happened that he was, as he was coming near Jericho, okay, get the flow geographically. He's been in Galilee. He's crossed over the Jordan River into Perea. He's gone back towards Samaria, and he's down in Jericho. And it's a final jaunt up to Jerusalem, an uphill climb. A certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. They told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There were lots of causes for blindness during this time. Unsanitary conditions war injuries, bright sunlight. They didn't have Ray-Bans or other sunglasses in those days. Um, Blowing sand that irritated the eyes. Blindness was very common. By far, however, the most common form of blindness was something called ophthalmia neonatorum, or congenital gonorrhea of the eyes. And it's a bacterium that resides in the birth canal of mothers, even to this day around the world, it's a common cause of infantile blindness. The bacterium is housed, it's carried in the mucosa of the birth canal, and children, when they come out of the canal, can get in the conjunctiva of their eye, the mucous membrane of their eyelids, that bacterium. It can reside in there and it can grow. The eyes can start to run and get pussy after a few days, and after just a couple of weeks, that child, if not treated, can be blind for the rest of his life. That is the most common. Now, there were no welfare systems quite like we have today. The blind were often beggars, and they sat at gates or openings of the city. And they were the victims of travelers who would come in. They'd say, hey, you know, I'm blind. Help me out. I can't get a job, and I need your help. Jericho probably had more blind people than other Israeli cities because... I don't know if you knew this or not, but there was a balsam bush that grew near Jericho out in the desert that they extracted uh, a, uh, um, the leaf. They ground it up, and they used it to treat blindness. So probably Jericho had more people looking around for you know, the right potion and the right cure than other cities. And this guy was sitting by the road begging. Now, he hears. He can't see. So... Verse 36, hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. They told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Now, I figure by reading this story that this blind guy had an edge on the crowd. 
he knew far more than they knew, even though he couldn't see. And the first clue of that is how he addresses Jesus. Notice what they call him, Jesus of Nazareth. That was the common way of introducing a person. First name from what city? Jesus of Nazareth. But he didn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He calls him by his messianic title. He cried out. The Greek word is kradzo, to vociferate loudly. Son of David, he cried out. Have mercy on me. Son of David? How do you know that? That's a messianic title. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that donkey and all the people cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, the Pharisees say, tell your disciples to stop that. Why? Because it was the messianic designation. Jesus asked the Jews, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. The Messiah will be the son of David. That's his messianic title. This guy's blind. He's never been out of Jericho. He's never seen any miracle of Jesus Christ. Yet he says, son of David. How did he know that he was the Messiah? Now, we don't know, but this is what I figure. He's at the gate of the city in Jericho at the time of Jesus. Being at the gate, he heard stories of travelers coming and going all day long, week after week, month after month. He had heard of Jesus Christ. He had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. The stories had come from Galilee and from Jerusalem, what he had done. After hearing the stories... He must have concluded, this Jesus of Nazareth must be none other than the Messiah. Because people would say, hey, this guy in Galilee named Jesus has healed a guy who couldn't walk. And there was a, a person who had a withered hand in the synagogue, and Jesus spoke to him, and, and he was healed. And, and maybe this Bartimaeus even asked a traveler, well, did you ever hear of him touching a blind guy? Oh, yeah, the many blind in Galilee now see, and he thought, it's my chance. If he ever comes to Jericho, I'm going to make sure he hears my voice. Maybe even he heard a rabbi expound one of the most famous Jewish scriptures in the synagogue, Isaiah 61, the Messianic scripture that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to open up the prison doors to those who are bound, to set at liberty those who are captives, and to open up the eyes of the blind. He thought, ooh, if he ever comes to town, he'll hear my voice. And so, yeah, what's the, what's the ruckus? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd was wrong also by thinking that Jesus isn't going to be interested in a blind guy. He'll be interested in all of the adulation of the crowd. And so they say, that's yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. He cries out. They say, be quiet. He knew the heart of Jesus enough to speak louder over the din of the crowd. They thought Jesus wasn't interested. This guy knew Jesus was interested. That's why he cried out louder. You know... I think that Jesus Christ hears over the din of the crowd the neediest people, the neediest Christ. Whoever you are tonight, whatever pain you are experiencing, yes, God hears the hallelujahs and the praise from all of his people, but he especially takes notice of those who are in deepest need. You're not a bother to God. 
This man was not a bother to Jesus. They said, oh, be quiet. Jesus stopped everything. Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought. When he had come near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Lord, he called him, that I may receive my sight. His prayer was direct and it was articulated. I share that with you because I think when we pray, we ought to be specific. We ought to articulate our need. Said, well, God knows my need. You know my unspoken request. That's my prayer life. Now tell him, articulate those needs. Now you can pray, oh God, just bless the world and bless all the people in China. What is that? Well, God knows my, of course he does. Jesus knew what he wanted too, but he made him tell him. He said, what do you want? Now the man said, well, come on, you're the son of God. You already know, I don't need to tell you. That I might receive my sight. Be specific, articulate it. How do you want God to bless the world? How do you want God to bless China? When you pray for missionaries, oh God, bless all the missionaries at Calvary Chapel. Name them. Think of their specific locations. Think of the people group in that location. Pray through the spiritual dimension and the barriers that are there that God would open up the hearts and let the officials' hearts be open so that the gospel and the Bibles could get in and the missionaries. And There's so many things to pray through. So he articulated it. Immediately he received his sight and followed him. Well, first of all, Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he received his sight and followed him. I read a story in the Los Angeles Times some years back about a woman named Anna Mae Penica. She had congenital cataracts. And uh, from six weeks of age, she could not see. So she grew up blind. She found a doctor in Los Angeles who was a master performing this kind of surgery. He did the surgery, and she had patches over her eyes, and when they were pulled off, several weeks later, she could see. Now, to her, she had never seen anything. And she wrote how odd it was to be blind all of her life, and suddenly to, to see people that she had heard for so long. And she said, they were not at all what I pictured them. The people that I thought were a lot thinner just by their voice, they were a lot bigger. And people that I thought were a lot bigger were thinner and taller, and she said they weren't at all what I pictured. She said, but I never thought that the colors could be so rich and so vibrant. She went on to say how just elated every day she woke up. Now, imagine Bartimaeus, no cataract surgery, just boom, from blindness to sight. That is why it says he followed him. Oh, he got an eyeful as he followed Jesus into Jerusalem. As he watched Jesus be put on a donkey. As he watched and heard the crowd say, this is the son of David. And what an eyeful he got if he were to stay around Jerusalem and see Jesus hung up on a Roman cross and wonder why. But then perhaps he was one of those that Jesus appeared to. The Bible says he appeared to 500 of his own disciples, this could have been one of them. But a great thing to be able to see the risen Lord. Immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. As we close, I see blind Bartimaeus as a picture of humanity. Blind from birth. 
spiritually blind, unable to see into the spiritual realm. And God has to come and open our eyes. We pity blind people. You ought to pity spiritually blind a lot more. We pity the physically handicapped. We ought to pity by far more the spiritually handicapped. There was a woman named Fanny Crosby. Ever heard of her? She was a hymn writer. She wrote 8,000 Christian songs. 8,000. She was blind from a young age as a little girl. One day, as after she was, became famous, wrote many songs for revivals, a minister who really didn't have much sense, which in some cases is typical, came to her and said, You know, it's a pity that the master who gave you so many talents has withheld your sight and didn't give you your sight. It's a pity that he wouldn't give you sight. He's given you so much talent. She said, Let me tell you something, Reverend. If I had one wish... It would, that I, it, was the, it would be that I could be blind from birth, not just from a little girl. He said, why on earth would you say that? He said, she said, because then the first face that would gladden my sight would be that of my Savior in heaven. It would be great if that was the only thing that would capture at first my eyesight. Blind Bartimaeus, a picture of so many that are without spiritual intuition, spiritual sight, you can sit there all you want and say, I'm going to be a good person. Get rid of this blindness. I'm going to think real hard, and one day, by my own self, I'll just start seeing again. No, it takes a touch from Jesus Christ. And it takes saying, have mercy on me. We see this throughout the whole chapter, is people who are humble are the ones that get changed. And so, Father, we humble ourselves tonight before you, before heaven, Rather than thinking we are holier than somebody else or looking down our nose at another person or another church or peers within our own church, we realize that we need your mercy. I pray, Father, that we would humble ourselves, that you might exalt us. Rather than exalting ourselves, that you might humble us. We pray, Father, that anyone who might be here tonight who, like Bartimaeus, has that deep need in their heart, that they would have that experience of not being overlooked by Jesus. But like Bartimaeus, I pray that they would cry out for mercy that they would speak up to you, that they would acknowledge their need and be very direct with you. Father, we see every Sunday many people doing eternal business before the throne of God at times just like this. And we think that perhaps some have come here tonight who need to do business with you, who need to come and express their need and their desire for salvation their need and their desire to get right once again with you after being in the enemy's territory for a stint of time. And we pray, Father, for them that like Bartimaeus, they would admit their need and come to Christ. He didn't 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 come to Christ.